1 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 18, we'll read to the end of the chapter, verse 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's all too common for us to think about church life as though we're picking the cruise ship we would like to book. We'd like to know that the captain has a fun personality and a lot of experience. We want to know that there are plenty of snacks and dining options. We'd like the people that we sail with to be perhaps similar to us in age or experience or maybe political affiliation, to share hobbies and interests. We'd like to know that the trip will be smooth sailing over safe waters all the way to Cancun or heaven. The truth is, in following Christ, we are actually called to deny ourselves of what the world would pursue for comforts and pleasure. We're called into a group of people from all walks of life who are all still dirty, rotten sinners. We're called not to a pleasure cruise, but to enlist in a battleship. Last week in our looking at 1 Timothy, we saw Paul digress in a good way away from the main theme of his letter being sound doctrine in the household of faith or healthy belief, right thinking and right action. He diverted into that idea of the overflowing grace that Christ has for us and, and his own personal testimony receiving that grace. The gospel message of superabounding over and beyond grace was a motivator for us to come to this next part of Paul's message to Timothy and the churches in Ephesus. Because here, he returns to the charge or command that he gave Timothy in verses one, I'm sorry, in verses three through seven. We are going to need that overflowing and abundant grace in order to address what Paul teaches us this morning. Because again, we are not on a pleasure cruise. We're on a battleship. We're at war, not against flesh and blood. It's something else, something more sinister, in fact. So follow along with me as we look at this short reading um, we're going to take these verses into three parts, and, and I made it a little bit clunky and messy just so that you knew it was my own. But first, we're going to look at verse 18 and the first part of verse 19 and see a call to war. Then, in verse the second part of 19, we'll see a warning of shipwreck, and then we'll end with verse 20 to find hope in correction. That's all available to you in the bulletin if that would be a service to you this morning. Follow along with me as I read verse 18 again. Paul says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. And again, we shouldn't overlook, just as we didn't overlook in the beginning, Paul's affection for Timothy. This letter is not written simply on the card stock of the business of the church of Ephesus with Paul's official signature and all the details of his instructions. This is written as though from a father in the faith to his beloved son, Paul writes, in accordance 
with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you might wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So we see this word charge again. He brings up the matter of Timothy's purpose in Ephesus. And he frames that charge in line with the prophecies made about him. Now that sounds really great. I will tell you that in my commissioning to ministry, I didn't get any prophecies. And probably most pastors don't get the prophecies. That's okay. What Paul is doing is returning Timothy in his mind to the moment that he set out to be about the ministry of the gospel with the apostle Paul. And that in the beginning, there were words spoken of encouragement, of hope, and of certainty that Timothy would go out and he would be a faithful witness to Christ, that he would be a faithful church leader. Now, we get from Timothy, and we'll see this a little bit more as we go on in his letter, and um, you can find it also in 2 Timothy as well. We get the idea that Timothy might be a little bit of a timid guy. He might not think he's cut out for this. And what a perfect person to put in this kind of position. What a, what a perfect kind of person for us to read about as we might feel similar uncertainties in our lives. Paul is reminding Timothy of the superabounding grace available to him for this task. So let's take that to heart as well as we look at these words. Now the charge is for him to hold to faith and a good conscience. I don't know if any of you, I know some of you have heard of the Chinese missionary Watchman Nee who planted churches in China in the 1930s. We wrote a small book called Sit, Walk, Stand, which is something of a commentary on the book of Ephesians. And in that, I think that knee can actually help us out as we look at 1 Timothy this morning about this command to hold. Because I think it's appropriate for us as we're thinking about waging good warfare to be thinking about holding in a military sense, like, like holding the ground, right? Holding the ground that's been won. So let, let, me, let me let knee, um, Watchman Nee explain this better. He writes, Our task is one of holding, not of attacking. That's very important, isn't it? We're not to be on the rampage, right? Christians are never at their ugliest than when they're on a rampage and think they're at war. That's not what Watchman Nee said. I'm just adding that in. Back to Watchman Nee. Our task is one of holding, not attacking. In the person of Jesus Christ, God has already conquered. He has given us his victory to hold. For our part, we need not struggle to occupy ground that is already ours. In him, therefore, we stand Thus today we do not fight for victory, we fight from victory. We do not fight in order to win, but because Christ, in Christ, we have already won. Let me say that line again, the one before. We don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. Now, this is where I, I want to take a sidestep and just say that there's a, a somewhat embarrassing trend in Christianity, to take this idea of being more than an overcomer and to turn it into the sort of arrogance that, that well, I'm more than an overcomer and I'm going to squash Satan's head today and, and no weapon formed against me is going to succeed and, and I'm just going to take it all because I am a boss, right? And, and so quickly that dwindles into a worldly mindset. So let us not hoot and holler over the victory that Christ has won in such a way as though we have won it for him. 
or in such a way as to assume that as long as we can kind of be the, the good Christian cheerleader that we're supposed to be and, and act like every moment of the Christian life is supposed to be like, like a rallying back to, to an excitement and an over-emotionalism rather than doing that. But a stand firm on what Christ has won in humility and recognizing that the way he won that victory was through suffering. And no student is greater than their teacher. We're going to suffer in this life. It's going to be hard. But no matter how difficult the trial is, the victory is already won. We fight not for victory, but from victory. So if anything, maybe it shouldn't hype us up to a special emotionalism. It should probably, you know, calm us down and focus us in on what we're called to do in the waiting. With the waiting for that victory to be realized. So, from Watchman Nee, and in thinking about this idea of holding, I know we haven't even gotten to faith in a good conscience yet, but still from holding, know that Christ has already won the war. Paul writes to Timothy. He says to us by the Spirit today, hold the position won by Christ. I don't know about you, but that illustration speaks volumes to me, probably because you all know what my favorite movie is. Here it comes. (laughs) That's in the top ten. It's really good, but it's not the top. (laughs) We have someone here who doesn't know. So in Lord of the Rings... I'm just kidding. I'm not, I'm not actually going that way. It's not in the notes. It's not allowed today. But you understand the difference between taking ground and keeping ground. What Christ calls his people to do is not to say, hey, I've given you this charge. I've given you some armor and a sword and, and a position. And from that, I want you to go take that hill. No, Christ is saying that hill's already mine. You're standing on it. You're holding the ground, church. And that's, that is our charge until the day that the general declares the victory completely won and the war over. And we can do this because he promises us strength to hold the ground. Look back at verse 12, if you would. Paul says, I thank him who, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. If God is able to strengthen Paul to the task, is he not able to strengthen you today, church, to what it is you're facing? The challenges, the heartbreaks, the difficulties, hold the ground. So holding, what is, it, what is the ground that we are to hold? Paul says we should be holding faith. And this is where commentators are, you know, kind of button heads a little bit this past week in my life, at least. Because it's probably best understood as not faith just in the, in the sense of like our action of trusting, but it's probably best understood as the faith, as in the gospel message that we receive, believe, and proclaim. So hold to that faith, hold to the faith. And this, this goes along with the rest of the theme of the letter, right? That Paul is concerned about sound doctrine or healthy Bible teaching in the church. And there are those who are not doing that. So Paul says, first of all, your goal is not immediately to deal with false teachers. 
your goal immediately is that you don't become a false teacher, that you don't believe, receive, and proclaim bad doctrine, unhealthy doctrine. First and foremost, Timothy, keep yourself in the faith. Hold to the faith. Borrowed from Jude there for a second. But then there's a good conscience. And this is an idea that Paul talks about all over his writings. It would be, if you need a fun Bible study this week, which you all do, right? If you need a fun Bible study this week, go to BibleGateway.com or another Bible-searching website and just look up good conscience and pull up all the passages where Paul talks about a good conscience. And then tell me what you come up with, because I didn't really do that this past week. It just seemed like it would be a good idea, and maybe I'll do that in my spare time. But a good conscience is putting the faith or the gospel into action in your life. A good conscience is that, you know, people call it the inner voice or the Jiminy Cricket of your life experience, of of your realization of the difference between right and wrong. And just as the word kind of suggests, con means with and science is knowledge, we sin and do right and do wrong with the knowledge of what we're doing right or wrong if we have a good conscience. Putting the gospel, putting the truths of God into action in our lives and obeying what God calls us to. It's how you live as a fruit of what you believe. So the response, to go back to last week, to the superabounding, over and beyond, overflow of grace in the gospel, the right response to that is to hold to a good conscience, to walk in obedience to it. We don't earn anything by our obedience. We respond with our obedience. The gospel comes in an effective way to believers, giving them new life and giving them the ability now to walk in increasing obedience with Christ. Is that one step forward and two steps backward and then four steps forward and then 400 steps backward? Yes. Is it difficult? Yes. Is it annoying in your own life and other people's lives? Yes, it is, but it's the reality. It's what we're called to. That good conscience isn't a perfect conscience. It's a growing conscience that's understanding the lead of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. Conforming our once dry life separate from the goodness of God and seeing it drenched in his grace in every aspect. So the charge is to hold to, a, to the faith and hold to a good conscience, and it is a charge in the military sense as in leading soldiers into battle. It is not for Timothy alone. And church, here's a really good point at, at this grammatical notion that Paul makes to understand that your Christian life is not meant to be lived in a bubble. How boring. How boring we make our Christian lives sometimes. Because we, we kind of just think like, well, this is my faith, this is my good conscience, this is my church life, this is my thing. No, make it interesting. Start sharing your faith with other believers. Some Christians find it easier to share their faith with non-believers than it is to share them with believers. But God calls us in this together, that we are fellow soldiers as the church. And we'll talk about what the battle really is in a moment. So part of the role of the church leadership then is equipping the saints, as Paul uses that phrase in Ephesians 4, to hold to faith in a good conscience. Paul teaches in the New Testament that leaders in the church should be examples to the flock and and they should be examples of faith and a good conscience, of clinging to Christ. Know that this is not only a charge for leaders, though, but everyone in the church. And that's probably one of the easiest mistakes to make in reading 1 Timothy 
And, and it's easy because you might have taken some steps to go, who was Timothy? What was this guy all about? Oh, he was a young pastor, and Paul is teaching him and giving him instructions. Well, I'm not a pastor, so I don't think any of this applies to me. It all applies to you if you're serious about holding faith in a good conscience. Even the things that we'll get to in chapter 3, if, if you never become an elder or a deacon, they, they still matter to you because you still have to be a part of a church where those things happen, where those offices are fulfilled. So we're on this battleship together, church. We wage the good warfare by tying ourselves to the mast of the gospel. We respond to the truth of God's word in obedience, and that's the good conscience part. So how do you know if sound doctrine is having its effect? Check your conscience. Has your conscience pricked you this past week? Has it, has it made note of the times where you lost your temper? Or even the times where you almost lost your temper? Or has it made note of the times where you've been wronged and desired for some harm to come to the one who's wronged you? Those are evidences of a good conscience. Does your conscience compel you to action in line with the faith that you hold? Paul writes with urgency in this, so we need to have an urgency this morning. We need to, and, and I would even implore you, if you're able to multitask better than I am, to as you're hearing these things this morning, to be taking a spiritual inventory of your hearts. Are we holding the ground won by Christ? Let's talk about the warning of shipwreck. Verse 19, second part of 19. It says, by rejecting this, and this part is where it gets a little bit tricky grammatically and what gave me some headaches this past week, but by rejecting this could either mean a good conscience or a good conscience and the faith. I'm not really set one way or the other. It makes some slight tweaks to where we go with it, but certainly if you're rejecting a good conscience, you're also rejecting the faith as well, right? Paul says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So we see the conflict in here. Rejecting the proper response of the gospel and rejecting the gospel is rejecting all that God has for us, is getting us to a place of shipwreck. And Paul says that this is the result of rejecting faith in a good conscience. So how does someone reject faith in a good conscience? Well, John Stott called this, if we're strictly asking the how, what does it look like, John Stott said that this is a violent and deliberate rejection that Paul's talking about. I don't know about you, but I kind of imagine in my own life that the worst parts of me wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be described by me as violent and deliberate. But it's a serious thing because the imagery is very serious. Rejecting the truth of God, rejecting a good conscience and response is making shipwreck of your faith. It's not just uh, steering the ship into a different port and finding some other way. It is shipwreck. It is desolation and destruction that we head to if we reject faith and a good conscience. Paul isn't warning about a matter of ignoring God's word in this case, though that can certainly lead to shipwreck, can it not? But in this case, it's actually a little bit scarier. It's actively rejecting what the word teaches and then teaching others to do the same. Now, again, as it's easy sometimes for us when we're looking at God's word to think, I don't really know how much this part applies to me. The fact is, is that we are called in this warfare that we're in to testify to the good news of Christ. 
So you may not be a Bible teacher or a pastor or a missionary. You might not hold one of those kinds of positions. And you might not even, let's say this week, you might not even open your mouth to testify about what you know of Christ. But your life that stems from your conscience will teach somebody something of what you believe about God. That is going to happen this week. So we cannot say, well, I'm not a teacher, or I don't teach junior worship this week, or I'm not in Sunday school this week. No, every moment our lives are proclaiming something that we believe about God, for better or worse. There are two responses when someone is exposed to God's word. We can, A, in humility, pursue and hold to the truth that we see. Or, again, to borrow John Stott's word, we can violently and deliberately reject it. Christ leaves no room for gray area, for neutral positions. You are on one side or on the other. You are part of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of Satan. We'll get to that in a second. The encouragement to believers is that there's warfare going on in the heart. If there is warfare going on in your heart, be encouraged that you haven't yet made shipwreck. If the ship is still steering straight, if there's holes in the boat, if the cannons are firing on all sides, that's a good sign. As we do still carry our old self, as Paul talks in Romans 7. Who will deliver me from this body of death? The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. And the things I do want to do, I can't seem to bring myself to do. See, it is the one who has rejected faith and a good conscience who says, I don't see anything wrong with this. Yeah, I used to call it sin, but really, is it sin? Is it really that bad? And you start to hear the words of the serpent in your own mind and in perhaps your own words. Did God really say that that's sin? Are we sure about that? And church, is not our culture diving headfirst into that mindset? Isn't our culture saying, you know, this book is really old, and I'm pretty sure it's full of a lot of mistakes, and maybe God didn't get this thing right. No, if there is a war going on in us, about our sin, the sin that we once enjoyed and harbored and perhaps docked our boat in, if there is war against that sin, it is a good sign that we are holding the ground. I imagine some of us might come to this passage wondering how someone whose salvation is securing Christ can make shipwreck of their faith. I, mean, I kind of wondered this too before this past week. I would come to this passage and go, oh man, this is one of these problem texts for guys like me who really like eternal security, who hold to the doctrine that once we are saved and in Christ, there is no removing of God's people from God's hand. And as we come to this, we'll actually find that there is hope in the corrective action that Paul makes here. Shiprock doesn't have to be the end of a person's faith but it very well can be. It very well can be the evidence that the faith that they claimed or that they tried to hold to was never truly theirs. We'll see from Paul at the end today that shipwreck doesn't have to be the end of that voyage, but it is something we need to watch out for because we can be deceiving ourselves. For now, let's ask another question. How might we find ourselves making shipwreck of our faith? And I think J.C. Ryle will be helpful to us in this, as he writes, the love of the world, 
the fear of the world, the cares of the world, the business of the world, the money of the world, the pleasures of the world, and the desire to remain in the world is what should concern us. I think that covers everything, doesn't it? Really quickly again, the love of it, the fear of it, the cares of it, the business, busyness of it. I actually don't know. This was 200 years ago. It could be the busyness or it could be the business of it. Either one. The money of the world, the pleasures of the world, and the desire to remain in and with the world. He says the world is the great rock on which thousands of Christians are continually making shipwreck. Worldly priorities can seep in and convince us in our hearts that we should be on a cruise liner rather than a battleship. It shouldn't really be this hard to be a Christian, right? It doesn't have to be drunken parties and outrageous lifestyles. It may just be the desire for a comfortable financial situation. And it may be that we find ourselves accomplishing that through workaholism. It might be the desire for complete and perfect health. Maybe not even for us, maybe just for our children. Maybe the desire to be able to skate through life like everybody else seems to be doing except for me. (laughs) You know those moments? You look at everybody else's life and you go, man, they've got it good. Why can't I have that? This is how we swerve off course. We need to be careful about that. It might be the influence of rising to the top in the world that sways us to seek even within the church a spiritual superiority. I am far more of an overcomer than you are after all. That's how I can find some value in myself as if I'm greater than anyone else. Boy, we're reading through the Gospels as a family and we've already hit a couple moments where the disciples have had multiple conversations amongst themselves about who was going to be the greatest. And of course, everybody thought it was going to be them. Like nobody said, you know, I think Peter's pretty fantastic. I'm pretty sure it's going to be Peter. What a great guy, right? No, all 12 of them are like, you don't even know. And, And it's so crazy to think about that because you imagine that they're just all so self-centered beyond what we could imagine, but they're, they were normal guys like us. I think, so put this under the category of Pastor Nick thinks, and don't take it as absolute gospel truth, but I, don't, I wonder if the disciples, in their bickering over who was going to be the greatest, were arguing over it because they had each sensed such a deep love and sense of victory in Christ that they must have thought, how could he love anyone else as much as he loves me? Right? It's just funny how we can warp even a good thing like that because of a worldly mindset that says, if God loves me this much, if Jesus has done so much for me, I must be something really special. Do you have a desire to rise to the top? Or is the ship steering straight in your life? Are you careful to hold to sound doctrine, the faith of the gospel? Do you have a good conscience? Paul warns us in chapter 4 of this very book, 1 Timothy, that our consciences can be seared by the pressures of the world, the way a hot iron can burn a hole through a cotton t-shirt if left on it long enough. Is your conscience awake this morning? Is it on guard against sin in your heart? Is it speaking to you the dangers that exist, the hidden reefs from where you're sailing? Where are you in danger of swerving this morning? Let's look at the hope and correction in verse 20. Paul says, regarding those who reject faith and a good conscience and make shipwreck 
among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. In one sense, he is sparing no details by giving names. If I stood up here, and sometimes I want to, I'm going to just be honest, and my, my, my own desire to rise to the top, and my own old sinful self coming back up, there are times I want to just say, hey, everybody, listen, here's a list of all the false teachers that I know so that you can just avoid them, right? Paul is able to do that here, not from a place of just trying to secure his own following, but in a way that reminds Timothy of perhaps the closeness of this issue. Because when he mentions Hymenaeus and Alexander, we're assuming these are Ephesian guys that Timothy and the rest of the church probably knew. And we're like, oh, Hymenaeus and Alexander? Wow, yeah, I remember them. Maybe, maybe the people reading this letter were thinking like, I remember what Hymenaeus was doing, or I remember what Alexander was doing. Paul doesn't mention it here because, again, he's not glorifying either himself or the false teaching of these two dudes. But he says, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Hymenaeus and Alexander were acting like or, or really just showing that their allegiance was not to the God of the Bible, but to the kingdom of this world. Satan's kingdom, where all our Disney World-like hopes for smooth sailing are fed and our desires for the kingdom of God are drowned. Paul's talking about a very serious matter in the church life, excommunication, removing an unrepentant member of the church for the sake of the rest of the church. Paul had to say, if you're going to act like Satan, you need to remain in his kingdom. In one sense, it's a, if that's what you really want, then I'm going to send you off to it. Now, interestingly enough, Hymenaeus and Alexander were in the church, and we can assume that they were church leaders teaching bad doctrine, and so they didn't want to leave. But while within the church gatherings, the, the symbol and the reality, really, of the kingdom of God, they were acting like those who live in the kingdom of Satan. And so excommunication in this case was an effort to say, listen, you guys, go back to where you belong. And, and that's, that's kind of a fascinating thing because it's false teaching that they're doing. They're not doing any necessarily explicit sins that we would go, oh, that's really ugly. They're teaching wrongly. A lot of church contexts today might look at that and go, hey, listen, we just, we just like sharing what we all think. And, you know, we're, we're really interested in new ideas. You know, there's one denomination that I don't know if they still do it, and I'm not going to name the denomination, mostly because I can't remember who it is, actually. But they had a campaign for a while where they would put up signs where they said, God is still speaking. I don't know who they are. Don't say who they are. Okay, that's... But, but the, on the one hand, you kind of want to be like, yes, he is. As a matter of fact, let's just listen right now. Right? But the implication was not in regards to what God has spoken, but in a fascination of what God could possibly be saying, particularly with those things that might contradict what we thought he had said previously. This is the danger, church. We are very careful to secure our homes, aren't we? Maybe your home security plan is just, you know, left and right. You know, I don't know. But we want to know, you know I don't know about you, but I go through a ritual every night where I go through and I lock all the doors and, you know, do all that. Turn off the oven and all that because Sarah leaves the oven on all the time. Just kidding, she doesn't. I don't know why I said that. But, you know, you go through these routines and you go through, like, your anxieties of what's the worst that could happen while I go to sleep. But 
are we that way about what we believe from God's word, about what we actually see? Are we careful with the doctrine that we believe, receive, and proclaim? Because Hymenaeus and Alexander were not, and Paul would have nothing of it. Now, of course, this isn't a simple issue when you're coming to excommunication, and there's a lot to be said about it, more than what we can say today. But know that when Paul did this, it was motivated by protecting the church in the grace of Christ. And even more important than that, to maintain the reputation of Jesus Christ himself. Remember Paul's refrain last week in verse 17. After expressing this overflow of amazing grace, he says, To the king of ages, immortal and visible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So it is in line with the gospel to take action in order to preserve the reputation of both the gospel and the one who has accomplished the good news for us. Church, there's no more important purpose, in fact. Christ calls us to holy living, to a battleship mindset with our own sin, and to proclaim his good work at the cross. How can we do that if we're thinking like and living like the world? But Paul says that he handed them over to Satan to teach them not to blaspheme. Did you catch that? I think it's very easy to get hung up on the, he handed them over to Satan. What does that even look like? Well, we know one thing for sure. They were not welcome within the gathering and the normal life of the church at that point because they had been doing damage, right? We get hung up on that and think about that, but listen to the purpose statement in this. In preserving the reputation and glory and honor of Jesus Christ, he does not set aside the mission of Jesus Christ. Do you see the distinction? What is it that Christ Jesus came to do? He said, it is a faithful saying, a trustworthy saying. Jesus Christ died, came to save sinners. That's what he came to do. So Paul, when he says, Hymenaeus and Alexander, you're out of here. Get out. You are causing so much trouble within God's people. He doesn't do it with a good written attitude. He does it with goodwill. He does it in hopes of the good news. He does it in hopes that they would repent of blaspheming, of using their tongues to speak things untrue of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the basis for everything in the Christian life, including something like church discipline. And this is what should set us apart from the world. See, if church discipline needs to happen because of, and again, this is, man, a huge topic, but if we can boil it down right now to the matter of unrepentant sin, of saying, hey, brother or sister, we see that there's sin in your life and you need to turn from that. And they continually say, no, I'm not going to do it. Go through the Matthew 18. If your brother or sister sins against you and you go to them and tell them what happened, and they still don't repent. Bring it, another brother and then bring it to the church. And if they don't repent even then to treat them like a tax collector and a sinner, what does that mean? It means you love them. It means you share Christ with them still. It means that, yeah, they can't be elders or deacons or official service within the church. It would be a rare thing that we today, in the way church is done now, would ask someone not to come on a Sunday morning. If someone was to be removed from membership because of a disciplinary issue, most of the time, unless there was a, a, a matter of safety or, or some significance beyond, we would still say, would you please join us continually on Sunday morning? Because we want to see repentance. We want to see the forgiveness of Christ wash over you in his grace because that is the mission even in church discipline. 
And you know what's so hard about that now is that when we have a disagreement or we maybe have a church discipline issue, it's so easy to just go, well, not going back to that church, going two houses down the road to the next one. And we miss out on this beautiful gospel principle that within the church we are to be those who do not just say, we don't get along, we don't like you, you harmed us or whatever, so get out. But that we have a desire to see repentance, a desire for reconciliation. And that is some serious warfare in our own hearts because people are difficult on this battleship that we all share. Hymenaeus and Alexander, Paul's desire for them was to correct them in the hope that they would turn from their sin. Again, that was what he said the aim of the charge was in verse 5. Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Paul's motivation is that of Jesus, who, according to Hebrews 12.10, disciplines us for our good, that we might share in his holiness. Church, I know that this has been abused by church leaders for 2,000 years, that there have been instances where church leaders have just said, I don't like that guy, I'm going to say that he's sinning and then kick him out of my church. That's not biblical. That's not right. But just because many times it's been abused and done wrongly doesn't mean we should do away with God's good plan for dealing with sin in the body of Christ. Because the good plan results in love and a purity and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And we know that because Christ himself does that individually with us at the place of our hearts. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Christ has taken all of our punishment at the cross. But when we sin, there are still consequences. And I think it's important for us, I've said this probably half a dozen times, but it's important for us not to consider the consequences of our sin as punishment so much as as discipline. Because he disciplines us for our good. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance and of full maintenance, I would add, in this context, even when it comes to this kind of warfare. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, not to kick them out permanently, but to discipline them in hope that there would be repentance. Christ came to save those who wanted to be like the world, which includes us. Those who couldn't hold to faith, those whose consciences were burnt to a crisp, At the cross, Jesus died for comfort seekers and sinners. And he's risen today so we might find in him a perfect reason to hold to faith and a good conscience. Because we trust that he's holding us. Amen? If Paul could have confidence in the grace of Christ for guys like Hymenaeus and Alexander who who did who knows what, what great confidence can we have in his own forgiveness of us this morning? Love is the aim of the charge because it's the love of God that charges us to hold to faith and a good conscience. Leaving the cruise ship behind and holding the ground won for us by the grace of our perfect general. So is there any desire in your heart to be like the world this morning? To enjoy its comforts a bit more? Worldliness is the rock on which thousands make shipwreck, says Ryle. So renew your hold to faith and a good conscience this morning. Hold to Jesus. Cling to him with all your strength. Not because you're so strong and able, but because he is able to hold you, to call you back in your wanderings, to grant you repentance in the times you wander into that daydream of making the world your true and perfect home. Church, Christ is far greater than what the world can offer us this morning. 
We need to be convinced of that daily because we're daily bombarded with the enemy's efforts to stop us holding the position of Christ's victory in our lives. He has overflowing grace for you in this. So run to his word. Fall on your knees in prayer. Prioritize fellowship with other Christians. Talk about your spiritual life and pray for each other. Wage the good warfare because the victory is won. Grace is ours in Christ. Forgiveness and restoration. So let's pray. Let's pray together now. And then let us proclaim his great forgiveness in song at the amen. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our overly abundant and gracious Father, we thank you this morning for your love that calls us to repentance, not to destroy us and grind us into powder, but to restore us and bring us back to Christ. So may we first, at the place of our hearts, wage the good warfare that we might hold to faith and a good conscience. Not by our own strength, but by that overflow of grace that holds us, that drenches us in your goodness. Lord, may the dryness of this world waste away in our hearts so that we might be better prepared for the kingdom we truly belong to. And Lord, in the meantime, as we face the bombardment of the enemy, may we hold the ground won for us in Christ, knowing that our general is not far off doing something else, but is with us by his spirit. At the very seat of our hearts, empowering us and keeping us his own. And Lord, for those who have drifted, those who have wandered, Father, may we, in any case of any degree of sin done against us, be those who are ready to express forgiveness and grace because we have been forgiven so much, because we have been given so much grace that really, if we're sitting under that massive waterfall of grace that you've afforded us in Christ... And there shouldn't be anything else to give. There should be no animosity, no enmity, no anger even when we're sinned against. Lord, we know we're not that perfect. We're not there yet. And you're okay with that, Lord, because you see us in that glorified state. Father, help us to trust the work that you began will be finished in Christ. To his glory and for our joy in him. Amen.